few days in advance. I'm sure lots of people are traveling and driving and heading here and there. Um, and so wherever your Thanksgiving takes you, I hope it is a, a uh, hearty one in all categories. So eat well and be thankful. <laughs> That's your pastoral admonition. <laughs> Blueprints. Blueprints. God's design for a vibrant church. We've been doing this series uh, all fall uh, for the, the purpose of uniting our two campuses into one shared vision, making sure that we are all singing off the same sheet of music, that we all have the same uh, vision for the kind of church that we believe God has called us uh, to be. And so when we were planning this series, we came up with this metaphor of a house. And to use that metaphor of a house to describe uh, a, a church. And so we have uh, begun, we began in the basement of the house, and we looked at the foundation, and we saw that the foundation of a biblical church is Jesus Christ. It is all about Him, which we love to say and to celebrate the supremacy of Christ in all things. And then we went into the living room, and in the living room we saw that for a follower of Jesus, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That life is worship, and everything that we do as a Christian is an act of worship to the Lord. Then we went into the family room where uh, people gather and, and families gather and Christians gather, and we saw that to be a part of a biblical church means that we are in community with one another and that we are fellowshipping with one another. And there is this whole horizontal thing that is a very important part of what it means to be a Christian. And Hebrews would say that we need one another in order to grow. From there, we went into the kitchen and we saw that. What God uses to nourish his church is the word of God and the spirit of God, as God works through those to bring life and understanding and illumination and ultimately spiritual growth. Then we went into the garden, the family garden, uh, where Christians are called to labor and to serve for the good of, of others, and we saw that the Spirit has given gifts for this, and that we are blessed in the using of our gifts, and it's a joy to us and a blessing to the church, and all Christians should be working in the family garden. Then we went to the closet in the house, and we saw that it is a prayer closet, and we had our week of prayer, our time praying. And then last week, we looked around the neighborhood and we saw that by God's plan, the church is called to reach its Jerusalem with love and compassion, with the gospel, and in doing this, being like salt and light, influencing its community for the Lord. Our final message uh, is this weekend, and this weekend, I want to kind of talk about a whole bunch of things that the other subjects didn't allow me to talk about, <laughs> basically. So uh, what we're doing is we're talking about what I'm calling uh, family values, family values here at Bethel Church. And all families have values. Every home has values. They may be written down. They may not be written down, but everybody in the house operates according to a certain set of priorities and, and things that, that dictate the experience of being in that house. In fact, you might think to yourself, well, what would, be our, what would be our family values if I was to write them down? Well, I have a brother-in-law. His name is Jeff Terrell, and Jeff is a, um, he's a, a pastor in the Kansas City area, and so I have been to his, into his home. And one of the things that I noticed in his home was quite unique, and it really fits well with what we are doing here, uh, to make sure that his family gets the values that they want to be the values of their home. They actually made a, like a big decal, here's a picture, please show it, of, of what their values are. And that is in the stairwell, and their stairwell is one where you go up, 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 you turn, up, 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 there's a landing, and right in the landing is, are, are those family values. Love God, family first, 
tell the truth, work hard, be kind to people. That's what they picked. Now, why do you suppose that he decided to have values that he put up in the house? I suspect it's because he thought to himself, and all the bedrooms are upstairs, so every time they go up the stairs, family values, up they go. And in the morning, when they come down the stairs, down they go, family values, down they go. Up and down multiple times during the day. What is every trip up and down the stairs doing? It is placing before their family the values that they want to hold to. Now, does Jeff's family hold to those perfectly? No, right? No family holds to their values perfectly. But those are there to inspire them, and as a reminder of the kind of family that they aspire to be, they've placed those values before them. And churches have family values. If you've been a part of, over the years, maybe growing up or whatever, you've been a part of churches, different churches, then I would bet that you could almost, if you wanted to, you'd be, you could list the, the values of that church family. They may not be on a wall or anything, but they're just kind of, it's in the air, it's in the air of the church. And when things happen, and, and over time, they operate according to those values. It's just part of the DNA of the church. And so what I want to do is I want, as best I can, to lay out from my perspective, I've talked with the elders, I've talked with the staff, our perspective, the values that we aspire to. Now, I want to hasten that these are in addition to all the other ones we've already talked about in this series, prayer and word of God and worship and these others. These are the ones in addition to that. And in a way, by doing this message, I, I kind of want to like, I, I want to put them on the wall of our minds and our hearts, not because we do these perfectly. We do not do these perfectly, but we aspire to do them perfectly. And by putting them out there, hopefully they will inspire us to be this kind of church family. So I've got seven of them, seven family values, and here is uh, the first one, truth over tradition. Truth over tradition. Let me read to you from Mark chapter 7, verse 9. Jesus now is speaking to the Pharisees, and this is what he says. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, or your tradition says, if any man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And then he adds this comment, and many such things you do. Now, I don't have time to get in all the history of the Pharisees and all of that. You maybe are familiar, possibly familiar with the Pharisees. They were the antagonists to Jesus in the gospel narratives. They were the ones who were very religious, but their religion focused on external righteousness. And the way that they codified that is they had these traditions, these teachings that had been handed down, one scribe to another, to another, to another, that they, they all held to. There were hundreds of extra-biblical rules and traditions that they then taught the people and said, you all have to do this. Now, Jesus here points out one of the examples of where their traditions actually trumped the truth, trump the word of God. He says the fifth commandment is to honor your father and mother, right? Everybody knows that. And yet what you do is you have a tradition that if any son or daughter says over the money that he otherwise would have used to care for his aging parents, this is devoted to God. Now he is free from obligation to assisting his elderly parents and he can do with the money what he wills. Now, Jesus points that out to them, and he says, do you see what you're doing? The truth is, you are to honor your father and mother. 
Your tradition gets you around that. And when push comes to shove for you people, he says, you go tradition over truth. Tradition trumps truth. And he says, you do many things like this. Now, I I need to tell you that uh, all of these seven things I'm sharing, all of them deserve not just a message, but an entire series. And I can't do that tonight, although they're probably available. I've probably spoken a series or at least messages on every single one of these points. So we're kind of having to fly by them. And it's hard for me because I'd love to sit on every one of them. But do I need to point out to you that in churches, that oftentimes the same thing happens. There, there is a kind of, there are traditions that develop or ways of thinking that develop within the church that people will hold to even if it is in contradiction to the truth. They hold on to the tradition. And by tradition here, there are some traditions that are, that are really good traditions. We're pro-tradition. If by that you mean things that help us to authentically worship God in a regular way. Maybe what I'm more talking about is traditional-ism. When that tradition is elevated higher than it ought to be, indeed higher than even the Word of God. This happens in churches all the time. In fact, you've maybe heard it, the six words that kill any church. We've always done it that way before, right? And churches create, we get these kind of say liturgy. I'm not against liturgy, but we get these kind of things that we do. That's just who we are. That's the way that we do things. And there is a power to them within us because there is a certain safety, isn't there, in tradition or what we know or what is comfortable to us. And in fact, I think there's often even a kind of sentimentalism towards the familiar and what we have known. And so we hold on to what we have known even when God's truth is calling us to do something different. Well, we can't do that. Why? Because this is the way that we do it. This is who we are. And we cling to the traditions of men. And I would say that this is not primarily an emotional issue. This is a doctrinal issue. Because if we believe that God's word is sufficient, that it is everything that that we need from God so that the man of God can be thoroughly equipped to every good work, then what it means is, is that God's word has to be in authority over even the traditions that we have, the ways that we've always thought and done things. God's word trumps it. And that's one of our cultural values here. What does the Bible say? And this is why I think Jesus was all the time driving the Pharisees crazy. It's one of the fun things about reading the, the Gospels and the life of Jesus is that you have, it's almost like they're the bumbling Pharisees. They're just all the time putting their foot in their mouth, always saying the wrong thing. And Jesus always confronting their traditions so that he would, for example, heal a lame man on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees would ride in on their horses, they would blow their trumpets, and they would say, what you are doing is wrong. Why? It's the Sabbath. You're, you only do miracles Monday through, or Sunday through Friday. No miracles on Saturday. We don't allow that. Or he would say something like about hand-washing ceremonial hand-washing, and that all these rules about ceremonial hand-washing, and his disciples didn't do it, and they would write in and say, wrong, Jesus, wrong, and, and what was Jesus doing? He was a man that did not live by the traditions of men. He lived by the truth. For Jesus, truth trumped tradition. I think this is a very important cultural value for us that we believe the truth is found in Christ, for sure, but in terms of propositional truth, it is in the Word of God. As the Reformers said, sola scriptura, what, you know, by scripture alone, what does the Bible say? One of my all-time favorite compliments I've ever gotten in my time here was actually intended to be a smear against me. I know you find that shocking. And this was related to me by somebody who overheard this, con- this, this uh, conversation. But years ago, 
We were in a season of change. We were making some significant changes, and guess what? Somebody didn't like it. And I was having a conversation with somebody, overheard by the person who related this to me, where this person was complaining about the changes. And the other person said, well, have you talked to Steve about it? And the guy just retorted, no, what good would that do? He'd just say, where's that in the Bible? <laughs> and I heard that, and I'm like, yeah, like that, right? That's the kind of pastor I want to be. And that's the kind of church I want to, not the bad attitude, but the, the point, <laughs> the kind of church that I want to, to pastor is a church that fundament, the default setting for us is not how we've always done it or how we've always thought about it, but what does God's word say about this? And let's just go with that. Now, I know a lot of things aren't specifically laid out in Scripture, and there is a lot of application of biblical principles, and there are some things that are challenges with that. I know, I know. What I'm getting at is this. One of the quickest ways for a church to die is for them to elevate tradition over truth. And now we are locked into one way of thinking and one way of doing ministry and one single way that maybe worked 25 years ago, but we're going to stick to that because that feels right to us. And there are empty churches all over Northwest Indiana who have done exactly that. And I say that with, I want to say that with appropriate uh, brokenness. Would that every gospel preaching church in this community was packed and vibrant, but clearly not. Why? I would say that when your Bible is closed and there is nothing new for you to learn and everything that God is going to do, he's already done in the past of your church, then that is a church that is in serious decline. And we don't want that. We want our Bibles open, our minds open, my theology book open. God, teach me, help me understand, inform my way of thinking, change me. Do you have it all figured out, friend? Is everything you know and all that, you, ah, I've already got it, I'm, I'm sticking with that. Truth trumps tradition. It must. And I would say to you that, you know, this has been a year where that has been put to some test this last year. Think about all the things that have happened in our church this last year. Most of it related to Mission Them, as we've talked about this, and We've rolled it out. We said we don't know what it means, and God has moved in a way. Here we are just less than a year after we talked about that, and we now have two campuses. We've remodeled the auditorium. Some of you had to swallow hard on that, right? What? I move on. Uh, what was going on in that moment? I would say to you that one of our cultural values has to be that the Word of God is alive and active, the Spirit of God is alive and active, and when those two are at work, things change. And it's a good thing. A child that isn't changing is a very sick child. A child that is changing is showing signs of health. And we want to be that young, vibrant church that is changing and, and, and welcoming whatever God wants to do amongst us. Amen? All right. So truth over tradition, cultural value, number one. Second, elder-led membership, deacon-led service. Elder-led membership, deacon-led service. Let me read some uh, just a couple example passages. Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, notice elders plural, for them in every singular church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Plurality of elders, plurality of leadership in the local church. Titus 1, 5. Paul writes to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete so that you may put what remained into order. Okay, well, what needed to be done? Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 
Elders, plural. Every town, singular. Presumably there would be only one church at that point. So plurality of elders, single congregation. And what we do here, we believe in this. Bethel is an elder-led church. Now, there are some things that the congregation speaks into um, with comments and and votes and such, but predominantly in the day-to-day and the week-to-week of our church's ministry, we have elders and pastors who are leading, who are the shepherds of the congregation, and uh, we have then the sheep of the flock. Now, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, lay out that, uh, those qualities, character qualities for what an elder needs to be, and we hold to those as well. We follow a model that elders are primarily responsible for the direction, the doctrine, and the discipline or the purity of the church. So that's their primary uh, responsibilities. Doctrine is the teaching. Direction is the vision. Discipline is the purity of the church. We have elders here. We have deacons here as well. That word diakonos, it literally means servant, and our deacons lead in the serving ministries of the church. So you see how that works? Elders, oversight, over shepherds of the, of the flock, deacons giving leadership and example in the serving ministries of the church. And we have both of those. And I got to tell you, we are blessed by the leadership that we have here. We have wonderful elders, wonderful pastors and staff leadership, small group leaders, wonderful deacon. Our deacon ministry rocks here at our church. You don't even know how awesome our deacon ministry is here, truly. I am so blessed to see the kind of ministry that our diakonoses are doing around here in ways that you don't even begin to realize. So... People will ask us in our membership classes or our Taste of Bethels, what kind of government, what kind of leadership do you have? We are an elder-led congregation. Notice that I also said elder-led membership. One of our values here is we believe in church membership. I wish that every single person sitting here was a member of this church, and if not a member of this church, some other good church somewhere. I think everybody ought to be a member of the church. And I can tell you why in a very simple reason. How do you shepherd sheep that you don't know are a part of your flock? That would be hard, wouldn't it? You gotta know who your sheep are. And membership, there's a lot of other things with this, but membership allows the church to know who its sheep are. So that when 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 the sheep... You know, my my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus said that, right? So that when we hear a out there, we go, it's one of ours. I recognize that, right? As opposed to the boo, we go, ah, they go to another church. (laughs) We don't need to worry about them. No. But you see what I'm saying? When sheep say, I'm a part of this flock, then the shepherd can say, then I'm your shepherd. When you don't know who your sheep are, it just creates all this confusion. So we believe in membership. And as we've been talking about with you, this uh, church merger and this series has allowed us to really do kind of like a membership class in mass. That's what this uh, Blueprint series has been. And what we have said to you is, this might be a one-time opportunity We will probably, I don't know if we'll ever do this again, uh, but if you attend or listen to all of the messages in this series, the normal five-week class is set aside. We have one class just to talk details with you, and uh, you can be a part of the membership process. So just to remind you, if you would like to do that, we have those dates for that meeting, and you just need to attend one of them, December 2nd, December 9th, December 12th. And all the sheep said? That's right. I hope that, I hope that all of our sheep will be identified. And I just want to say that, you know, the church largely rises and falls on its leadership. And we have, again, we are so blessed with so many wonderful people who invest time and energy and serve and provide leadership. If you have an opportunity here, it's Thanksgiving week. If you have an opportunity 
say thank you to those individuals that God is using in a kind of spiritual leadership over you uh, to, to bless you and to shepherd you. All right, truth over tradition, elder-led membership. Here's the third, weighted theology. Say that with me. Or another way to say it is this, keeping the main thing the main thing. One of the great failures of the Pharisees, if we can go back to them a second, is that the things that should have been really important to them were things that they were not so important to them. And the things that, even in, according to the Old Testament law, really were not that important, they were all the time making super important. So that, for example, Jesus says to them, you Pharisees, you are straining out a gnat, which think of how, how small a gnat is, and think, imagine if you were like carefully trying to keep the gnat from getting in your, you're straining the gnat and you're swallowing the camel. Somebody got it here. If you laughed at that, that's Bible humor. That's Jesus using uh, hyperbole to describe the practice of the Pharisees. They would worry about the gnat, and then they would swallow the camel. Or another example. He says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Like what? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Imagine the Pharisees. There they are. It's time, to, it's time to give. It's time to tithe. One seed, two seed, three seed, four seed, five seed. They're all they're like seed. One, two, three. Because I wouldn't want to give one seed too many, of course. And I want to make sure that I fulfill my conscientious part of the law. There they are. The little seed. They're all obsessed with the little seed. And the weightier matters that God really cares about, like justice and mercy, pff, care less about that. The Pharisees. You know, whenever you find yourself on the side of the Pharisees, you're probably on the wrong side of things. Truly. How do we avoid being a church that obsesses over some secondary matter where that thing suddenly rises and become so important in the church, people begin to argue about the secondary thing. They start to say, well, if that's what you think about that, and you disagree with me on that secondary thing, I am not fellowshipping with you. That never happens in churches, does it? Oh, it happens all the time. What is going on when that happens? It is the spirit of the, it's the, it's the weighty, it's the weight, they have a weight problem. Pharisees have a weight problem. What ought to be heavy is not, what shouldn't be heavy is. And it divides churches and it divides God's people. So what we say here is we believe in weighted theology. In other words, not everything is as important as some things, and that we want to be a church that tries to weigh the heavy things and worry about the heavy things and on the secondary things to not be so uptight about them. Or as I have friends, they say they wear their panties way too tight about some of those things. Now that was perhaps not a helpful metaphor, but it <laughs> gets at what I'm talking about. How do we avoid this? We keep the main thing the main thing. And that's one reason that I like it's all about him. I like it not only because I could back that up over and over and over again in Scripture. I believe Christ is the point of all of Revelation. The Bible is all about him. As he himself said on the road to Emmaus, as he exegeted himself out of the text, explaining to the two disciples, 
how all the scriptures were talking about him. And to realize that the purpose of the church is to bring glory to Christ. We are his bride. So I, I, I'll, I'll go to war on that one, okay? I'll go to war on that one. What we don't want is to go to war on things that we shouldn't go to war about and that good people can disagree on. And probably down through history, really brilliant, godly people have disagreed on. And our church needs to have a kind of elasticity that allows us to to take in these secondary issues, which many of them are very important, but they're not the ultimate important. And this is why, I, frankly, in my opinion, over the years, I've, I've marveled at how God has maintained the unity of our, of our congregation. We have, we have done colossal changes here over the years. This last year was a big year of change for us. And yet God has continued to maintain our unity. And I believe, and, I, and let me just add this, I get to be more behind the scenes than most people around here, and I know the diversity that we have in our congregation. If some of you knew the diversity that we have, you'd be frightened. I had no idea we had people around here that thought that. Yes, we do. Now, not on the primary things, but on the secondary things. Can we disagree agreeably on secondary issues? And love one another for Jesus' sake. That's a cultural value for us. Not that we won't drill down intellectually, biblically. I mean, get down in the mud and work on these, some of these doctrinal things and such. We want to do that. But at the end of the day, if we're going to be united in heaven, then we ought to be united in earth. Maybe you've heard the old joke about, no, I won't even tell you about the, the old joke about, no, never mind. This message is too long anyway. I can't sidetrack. So we believe in weighted theology. Not everything is as important as everything else. So can I just say this in case we have some sleeper cells here? You're waiting for some signal from the mothership to activate in order for you to, like, go nuclear over your pet issue. What I want to say to you is, like, if you're obsessed with whether Adam and Eve, or Adam, yeah, Adam and Eve had a belly button or something silly like that, you're not going to get a hearing here. You're not. And you can try to divide the church, but unity is a big thing. And now the elders have a responsibility to come down with a hammer in love, speaking the truth in love, but with a hammer, because... Unity is a biggie. You see what I'm saying? And the Pharisees, they didn't get that, but we want to get that as a congregation. It's a family value. One helpful thing, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but my, uh, my spiritual mentor in ministry had what he called the inverted pyramid. I'll just throw this up here for a second. I think it's helpful. And what you see here is, if you can visualize this as an inverted pyramid, where the foundation is Christ. And then right off the foundation, you have those core doctrines, who he was, deity, humanity, virgin birth, his work, uh, atonement, redemption, uh, coming again, you can include that. He is, the, that, he is the, the, the most important thing. Right off of that, then, you have some very important general doctrinal categories, creation, fall, redemption, second coming, the authority of the word, and maybe you'd put a few other ones in there. But then you keep moving up from that, and you have other things that people can disagree about that are very interesting and important, but not quite as important as the person and work of Christ, which my my mentor put in there, eternal security, election, free will, and there's probably a thousand blocks that you could go that way on that level. And then above that, sanctification, method of baptism. Above that, church polity, spiritual gifts, music skills, do's and don'ts. And on and on, you have all these things that divide God's people. And notice he says, love is the mortar that holds us all together. And the further you get off of that foundation, the more tolerance you get. There is no toleration for anybody that denies the person or the work of Jesus. That's heresy. 
No, we won't stand for that. I'm not talking about that. And you can even argue on the next level there. But you get past that, and we can have some really interesting discussions. But at the end of the day, we're both in heaven together. And if we're unified in heaven, and if God accepts them, then so should we. Okay, that's it. Take that down. That was quick. Kind of helpful, though, isn't it? Interesting way to think about it. All right, here's our next cultural family value. And it relates to this. It is unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. Let me read to you Jesus' words, John 17. This is his prayer, his high priestly prayer. He says to his Father, I in them, speaking of the disciples, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And in that passage, we find Jesus praying for the unity of his of his people based upon the eternal unity within the, the Trinity, within those, those inner Trinitarian relationships, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. As you and I, Father, are one, may they be one. How one is the Trinity? So one that it can say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And yet they are three in one. Powerful, eternal, organic unity, so together, never divided. May the church be like us, is what Jesus prays. Whew, that's massive, massive. Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, well, what does that look like? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, the previous point in this one relate in this way. When we keep the main thing the main thing, when that truly is the passion of our heart, it allows a unity amongst the church even while there is tremendous diversity and we've got all kinds of diversities in our churches, I just explained a moment ago. Different backgrounds, different families, different ethnicities, educational, social, religious backgrounds. I mean, if we really just were to go around and say, what's your background, what's your background, we'd be amazed right here in this room with the amount of diversity that we have. And yet, in spite of that diversity, the church is called to be one to be unified. And that comes down to an attitude, doesn't it? Because we can say, oh yes, we are one. Isn't it wonderful that we are one? And have all kinds of infighting and slander and gossip and people being nasty to each other. That's not what Jesus was hoping for. It is an attitude of humility, which Paul talks about in Philippians, where I see others as more important than myself. Who wouldn't want to be a a part of a church where everybody there thinks that you're more important than them? Now, of course, if you walk into that church and say, well, I'm glad that they all realize that, you've kind of, you've sort of messed with the the DNA. Uh, But it's where we all are viewing each other as being significant, more significant than even ourselves. And from that perspective then, a position of humility, now I can love people that I may disagree with on some particular matter. But if the core is right, then we are one in Christ. And we want to display that together. Unity. The old saying says it well, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I want to highlight one that I think is so important for us, given where God has called us to minister, and that is racial diversity. We live in such a racially charged community here in Northwest Indiana where the trip to the mall or to any, any public gathering shows that there, are, there is every color of skin of the world right here in Northwest Indiana. And if God has called us to reach our Jerusalem, as of course he has, one of the very important cultural values that we must have is that we do not measure a man or woman by the color of their skin. But we see them for who they are as an image bearer. 
as somebody that Christ died for and to welcome them in gospel neighboring as Christ welcomed us. Red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in his sight. Cultural value here. Amen? Amen. Next. Holiness, not legalism. Holiness, not legalism. Again, we begin with God's word. Colossians 2. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. In other words, man-made rules. These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. That's, that's legalism. Here now is holiness. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's a really great verse. Now, I've shared my story many times. I know many of you know my story. I don't mean to belabor the point, but it bears repeating that I grew up in a pond of Christianity where I think if you were to ask the young people that grew up in that pond, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What what does it mean to be a good Christian? The answer they probably would say is, you follow the rules. You follow the rules. And if you were to ask them, well, what are the rules that you're talking about? Most of them would be rules that somebody came up with and you can't find in the Bible. And like what he says here, many of them have an appearance of wisdom. They they appear wise. The problem is they have no ability to actually produce what God wants, and that is holiness of life. Man-made rules have no power at all. And so I grew up in that, and I know many people I've met around here have a similar kind of background and struggled like I did when I actually got out into the world and had to sort of make my own decisions and say, like, what does it mean to follow Christ? Struggled because my conscience was so controlled by the, the background that I came from to try to figure out what does it mean to be a real follower of Jesus? And when you begin to read the Bible... And to see that a lot of these things fall apart, many people question the whole thing and they punt on Christianity and they never go to church again. And many of you that grew up in churches know people like this. It creates a kind of bitterness against the church. Ah. And I'll tell you what else it does. When people buy into a legalistic approach to sanctification, it makes everybody professional hypocrites in the church. Because the cultural value in the church is a lifestyle standard that nobody can meet. And yet in the church, you better meet it or you're in trouble, right? And so everyone becomes very good at hypocrisy, which is why kids that grow up in that see the hypocrisy and they say there must not be anything to the gospel anyway. And they walk out the door. We don't want that here for our young people or for any of us. We don't want man's rules We like God's rules, but we don't want man's rules. We want what God wants here. Holiness, not legalism. Now, let me define the terms here a little bit just to make sure we know what we're talking about because there are many people, they throw out that term, oh, legalism and all that, and I think they don't really know what they're talking about. So what is legalism? Here is a very good definition. Legalism is the attempt to establish or maintain a right standing with God by means of our own efforts. Let me say that again. It is the attempt to establish or maintain a right standing with God by means of our own efforts. It denies the grace of God. It denies the spirit of God. It is something that I do, which is why in legalism there is massive ego and pride. Because if, if people can think that I have done that, now look at me, right? Right? 
Look how godly I am. I want everyone to know. And so you have pride and you have hypocrisy, and that is just a formula for a whole ki- all kinds of problems. Legalism. Legalism adds to God's moral stipulations, either to get saved or to show that I'm saved, right? Sanctification. Now, our value here is not man's rules. In fact, I got enough problem uh, obeying God's rules. We don't need to add one to it. And the people said, and the hypocrites said, (laughs) I'm not sure if I should say anything right now. Just start with those Ten Commandments and you'll have a whole lot of work on your hands right there. Right? Why do we need to add to what God has said this is how I would like you for you to live. We don't need to do that. Holiness, not legalism. What is holiness? Well, let's remind ourselves, what is God doing? Now, yes, we've been declared righteous and justification. Yes, we're now forgiven of our sins. But there is not instant rapture, have you noticed? Here we are, right? Apparently, God's plan is for us to live a life as an act of worship to God, and God is doing something in us. This is now called sanctification. I, the process of becoming in practice what I am in position by justification. Becoming more holy. Holiness. Here's Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In the big picture, this is what God is doing in your life. Many of us go to prayer, we're like, oh God, what are you doing? Something happens in our life, some pain, some whatever. What are you doing, right? I'll tell you what God's doing. He is conforming you to the likeness of his son. Why would he do that? Because he loves his son. And I've used this illustration so many times that I'll just say it again. When parents have kids, what do they do? They take pictures of them. They put them up on the wall. They litter the house, little candles in front of them. Here are our children. We love our children. Do they love the piece of paper and the ink blots on it? No. They love the child. But when you love the child, you love everything that looks like him. And what is God doing in this world? He is littering the world, filling the hallway of his house with likenesses of his son. Why? Because he loves the son. And he loves everything that reminds him of him. And so he is conforming us to Christ. As a friend of mine said recently, he's making us Jesus juniors. Jesus juniors. That's what he's doing. Now here's how our church doctrinal statement says it. It's so good, I'm going to read it, okay? So bear with me. Here's what it says. After receiving salvation, believers exhibit a positive moral change and begin to live a life of progressive sanctification, whereby they increasingly obey God's word. Notice it doesn't say perfectly, increasingly. Genuine Christians display evidence of God's sanctifying work as they exhibit a growing, not perfect, growing aversion to sin, strength of faith, commitment to holiness, demonstration of righteousness, and love for Christ. While it is impossible for the sinful nature to be completely eradicated in this earthly life, the Holy Spirit helps believers experience lasting victory over sin as they strive to increasingly reflect the attitudes and actions of Christ. There you have it. That's a good statement, don't you think? This is what God is doing in all of our life. This is what he was doing in your life this week. It's what he's gonna do this week, coming week. The actions and the attitudes of Christ, Jesus Jr.'s. And man's rules don't do that. It comes by the Spirit. It comes by the Word of God. So let's embrace the need for holiness and this progressive sanctification. And let's reject all the attempts to make man-made rules. Outward righteousness. Standards of godliness that have no root in God's Word. Holiness, not legalism. You like that? Amen? All right. All the Jesus juniors, amen.
All right, next, second to last, a redemptive community. A redemptive community. Now, what do we mean by a redemptive community? Simply this, the gospel is for sinners. The gospel is for sinners. It's not for good people. Jesus said that. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick, those that recognize their need. 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is the church's ministry? We are, a part, we are agents of God reconciling sinners with God through the gospel. This is redemption, and this is what we celebrate here. All of this is here to help that ministry happen. And a redemptive community is one that believes that God can redeem anyone. And so we're slow to give up on people. We're quick to hope and to believe that God can change and God can restore and God can transform. Pastor Gary said something to me recently. It just stuck with me. He said, and and Pastor Gary does our our counseling ministry, leads our Celebrate Recovery ministry, so he's down there in in the trenches with people, and he said this to me. He says, you know what? He says, I cheer for sinners every day. I cheer for sinners every day. Now, I know Pastor Gary, I'm pretty sure he doesn't cheer for their sin, right? We don't cheer for sin, but we cheer for sinners because we believe that the gospel and Jesus can change and restore anyone. And while they are still alive and there is breath in their lungs, there is hope that God can yet get a hold of them and to redeem them. And so for our church to be a church that celebrates that, as we see people baptized, as we hear testimonies of God changing and working in their life, that we, we celebrate that. And when we see it not happening, and we wish it was, we pray and we hang in there with them. And we stick it out with them, hoping that God will yet redeem them. I've said it this way before, in dealing with people, we want to be the kind of church that if we have to err on any side, we err on the side of love. We err on the side of love. Grace. Mercy. And I'll tell you, there are so many hard situations here. Every week, every week. Before the service, somebody said to me, how you doing? And I said, well, in pastoral ministry, there are always things that are encouraging, and there are always things that are not so encouraging. That's every, that's the church week after week after week. Marriages blowing up. Young people making horrible decisions. God's people acting in the flesh towards one another. And yet, love calls us to hang in there. It doesn't mean we overlook things and we are a church that believes in admonishing and speaking the truth in love for sure, but we hang in there. Why? Because God hung in there for us. He hung in there for us, didn't he? And every single one of us that have tasted the grace of God, we we know how much the Lord has been gracious to us. And that's why when you see a quick to judge and and a quick to just, you know, go nuclear, have you tasted of the grace of God? And why are you wanting to treat that person like that? Redemptive community. Cheering for sinners, I like that. Finally, number seven. Generosity. Generosity. Second Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Second Corinthians 9.11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, I know how many of you are thinking right now, you're thinking to yourself, oh, he's wanting to talk about money. And you know what? You do the exegesis, Paul is talking about money in 2 Corinthians 9. So, deal with it. (laughs) 
What I am more talking, though, about is a generosity of heart and a generosity of spirit, a congregation that is liberal in its uh, giving and is generous in its uh, giving. And that goes, that includes money, but it goes so far beyond that. It's, it's an, again, it's an attitude. It's a DNA cultural value and an attitude. When you sense that people are willing to give of themselves for others. Now again, why would we do that? Because God has given of himself for us. Oh really? When did he do that? He gave us Christ. That is the gospel. In fact, it's hard to see how a true Christian could be anything but generous. Now I say that, believing in progressive sanctification, but there are some people that claim Christ and I can't see any generosity at all. Still selfish, still about yourself, that kind of thing. When I understand what God has been for me in Jesus, my heart grows. I have an enlarged heart, as George Whitfield used to talk about. An enlarged heart towards the needs of others, the needs of God's work, the needs of the church, the needs of God's kingdom. And the things that I have and who I am are all at God's disposal. I don't see, the, I don't see everything as mine, like those little pelicans in that one Disney movie. Mine, 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 mine. There are churches like that, flying around. Everyone, mine, 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 mine. We don't want that, do we? Yours, 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 yours. <laughs> his, 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 his. Amen, 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 amen. How do we get there in a culture that just ingrains it in us to live for self. It is the gospel. God breaks our hearts with our sin and our rebellion, and he fills our hearts with his love found in Christ. And the fruit of that then is that the things that I want to hold on to, my hand opens on them, and I offer them as an offering to the Lord. Whatever you want with me, whatever you want with my stuff, Whatever you want with my life, I give it to you, Romans 12, 1, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Generosity. And those are the seven, okay? Those are the seven. Let's just put them up there and review them quickly. Truth over tradition, a church that's living for today and tomorrow, not for yesterday. Elder-led membership. Sheep that know what flock they're in and shepherds that know who their sheep are. Weighted theology, keeping the main thing the main thing, which allows us then to have unity in the midst of diversity. Holiness, not legalism. A redemptive community cheering for sinners every day. And a generous church that shows it gets the gospel. And so I'm just wanting to kind of put that up on the walls of the hearts of our people that we might aspire to be that kind of church. And if you're with me, would you please stand right now and let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have produced this church. We are all blessed to be a part of it. We thank you for Bethel Church. We thank you indeed for the history of our church. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a church that while celebrating the past, lives for tomorrow. And in doing that, Lord, continues the cultural values uh, that, uh, that have shaped who we are. So help us to be, help us to become, and may you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to conclude tonight by reading congregationally from the purpose statement of our church. We have a doctrinal statement that says this purpose, and so I'm the pastor, you're the congregation. I think you'll know your role. Bethel Church exists to glorify God for, uh, by making fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ who worship and exalt him in all things.
Seek the Lord in earnest prayer. Experience the power of authentic, life-changing fellowship. And engage our community and the world with the gospel of Christ. May God build his church for his glory, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen and amen.